John chapter 9. As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth, and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said these things, he spit in the ground and made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, Go wash in the pool of Siloam. So he went and he washed and he came back seeing. They brought, they brought to the Pharisees the man who had formerly been blind. Now it was a Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. So the Pharisees again asked him how he had received his sight. And he said to them, He put mud on my eyes, and I washed, and I see. Some of the Pharisees said, This is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, How can a man who is a sinner do such signs? And there was a division among them. So for the second time they called the man who had been blind and said to him, Give glory to God, for we know that this man is a sinner. He answered, Whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, that, I, that though I was blind, now I see. Jesus heard that they had cast him out, and having found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, And who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, You have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. He said, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. Jesus said, For judgment I came into this world, that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, Are we also blind? Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say, We see, your guilt remains. This is the word of the Lord. Several weeks ago or months ago when we were in John chapter 2, I talked about this picture. This is a picture called the marriage at Cana. And it's found in the Louvre in France. Now, when I asked that question to those of you here or then, some of you had actually been to the Louvre. And all of you had seen the Mona Lisa, but none of you could remember having seen this picture. This is actually directly, from what I understand, behind. If you look at the Louvre this way, this picture is behind you, that the other direction, on the other side of the wall. Now, the Mona Lisa, I am told, is about 20 by 30 inches, okay? Is that a roughly about, which is about this big? This picture's a little bit larger. This is 20 by 30 feet. It's huge. It's a massive picture. And it's a depiction from the 16th century by Veronese of the marriage at Canaan, which is found in John chapter 2. And I talked about it a few weeks ago because, in many ways, art is the, uh, the, is the art of seeing and taking time to observe. Many times we just walk right past, we see, oh, that's an old picture, there's whatever, there is. But if you look at that carefully, and there's many things that you could talk about with regard to that, that, that picture, but remember, it's 20 feet by 30 feet large, okay? And it sits over there, and it's the marriage of Cana in Galilee, and if you look at it carefully, you will look, you'll see there are about 50 or 55 
different people in this marriage uh, uh, celebration. And the odd thing is, the, 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 the bride and groom are off onto the left side, which is not the normal place. The, pe the person in the very center of the picture is, guess who? It's Jesus. And if you look carefully, you'll see that everybody's involved in one kind of a thing for another, but you can't find evidence of anybody actually speaking. Okay? And as you look at this carefully, you, you begin to see that in the center of it, which in the Renaissance time period was very important in the picture, you see that directly above Jesus' head, there are some guys up on the top, and what are they doing? Can any of you see? They are slaughtering something. They're, they, they, got their, they got their axe up here, and they're cutting, you know, food. And it's directly above the head of whom? Jesus. So there's sort of an image in that. You start to look at it, look more carefully. You see these people. Um, and if you lived in that time period, you would actually recognize that the author of this painting, the painter, had actually put in some contemporary figures, faces in there. We don't recognize them, but people who study these sorts of things can see some of those people in there. And you see some Renaissance musicians down there playing some first century <laughs> bass violin, which is a joke. There's no such thing as a first century bass violin, so he's put in some anachronistic pictures of these men uh, making music as an evidence of the joy of human life and the, the, uh, the, uh, the renaissance. And in the middle of it, you can't see it very, from there, but there's actually a, an hourglass right there in the center. Directly in the center of this picture, there's an hourglass, which is about the transitoriness of time, the time ends. And so as you begin to study this picture, you begin to see more in it. A cursory glance just tells you a bunch of people playing at a wedding. And then the one thing that you notice, if you look carefully at this photograph, or this uh, a painting, you begin to see that nobody is looking at you. Except who? Jesus. Jesus. Over 50 people in this painting. And so what we begin to discover is that while we are looking intently at this painting, this work of art, we find ultimately that we are being observed, are we not? And that is what happens when you read scripture carefully. You can read it in a cursory fashion. Oh, John chapter 2, the marriage of Cana and Galilee. John chapter 3, Nicodemus. John chapter 4, the woman at the well. John chapter 5, the man by the pool of Bethesda. John chapter 6, the feeding of the 5,000. John chapter 8, the woman caught in adultery. John chapter 9. You know, we, see, we, don't, we, we don't really see it, though. But if we stop and look, we find that ultimately Scripture begins to interpret us. And so that's why it's been a real pleasure for me over these last couple of months to begin to take a look at a deeper way at these stories in Scripture so that we can find as we look at them, not only that we begin to see Jesus more clearly, but that we find ourselves being seen more clearly by Jesus. Enjoy appreciating art is learning the art of seeing. Appreciating scripture is learning the art of seeing and being seen. And so this morning's talk is called Blinded by the Light. This is a story about blindness and about seeing. And I, I put a, an extra slide in there, Brian, in case it came out too small. You can skip that one and go to the next slide, okay? So we want to see two things in this story, and I'll try to be very quick and brief because we're going to make sure we end on time today. We want to see that there is blindness for those who see, and then secondly, we'll see more briefly, there is sight for those who are blind. This is a story, a masterful story, which John the Gospel writer has told to us about 
light and about darkness, about blindness and about sight. And if you've been tracking with us in this story, or in this, in this gospel, you realize that in John chapter 8, he said, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And last week, we looked at these audacious claims about Jesus, that Jesus was the light, the light of the world, that Jesus uh, was, is the truth for all of life, and that Jesus is God in the flesh. And these are audacious claims that he made. And what we find as we're tracking this way through John is things are getting more and more tense. It's getting more and more uh, uh, dangerous for Jesus, and very soon now, we will move into the last week of Jesus' life. John is fast-tracking us towards Jesus' death. In the fact, from chapter 12 to chapter 19, we had that whole time talking about basically the last week of Jesus' life. We're in chapter 9, and we see here that Jesus says, I am the light of the world, and he shows it by what? Giving light to a man who had been Blind. This is a very important miracle of Jesus. So, we want to see uh, in this text, and I'm going to try to read it for you. Now that I'm indoors, my vision is not quite so good as it was. Um, in John chapter nine, um, we see that in this text there is a controversy about uh, light and darkness, and that verse 39 says, "I came into this world that those who do not see may see, and that those who see." They become blind. The Pharisees are, as you know, the people who think they see but are blind. So let's talk, first of all, about the blindness, about blindness for those who see. What are the characteristics of that? And, oh, I wish I had a little bit more time to really delve into this because I have given a lot of thought for a lot of years over these uh, characters called Pharisees. A lot of us think very flippantly and casually about these men, like they're somehow bad dudes. They were very serious and sincere religious people. In fact, if we are very honest with ourselves, and I will put myself especially in this category, if I'm very honest with myself, I can see a lot of similarities between things that I value and the things that these guys value. For example, if you study the Pharisees, you will see they were noted for some very important characteristics. The first one is they were noted for purity and piety. They were serious about their following of God. They were a sect of Jewish teachers who arose a few hundred years before Jesus uh, came on the earth where they believed that if they could just follow the law more accurately, more faithfully, more uh, uh, truly in their lives, that that would then set the tone for the Messiah to come. They were people who valued Purity. Now, if you're a follower of Jesus, you value purity, don't you? You value living right. You value things like honesty and integrity. When I say purity, we're such a sexual crazed society that we often think of sexual issues. Um, and of course, it includes that. But it's so much more than that. about living a, a totally humane and human life, being an upright person. These were people who cared deeply about doing the right thing and living the right way. And so do we. That's not a bad characteristic at all. And piety. 
They were people very sincere about the following of their religious duties. They took their faith very seriously. They, they tithed their, uh, their income religiously. They prayed regularly. They practiced their religion in a very devout way. And if you are a follower of Jesus, I hope you do the same. Purity and piety are not bad things at all. These were good guys with regard to purity and piety. A second characteristic of these that we can put down is they had a huge reverence for scripture. Now I hope that everyone who is here today has a strong reverence for scripture. Because we teach the scriptures here at Ecclesia, we believe that this is God's inspired word given to us to help us live our lives according to the way that God wants for us to live. That's what the Pharisees believed too. They had a huge regard for scripture. They memorized books of the Bible. In fact, most Jewish uh, men had memorized way more than you might even imagine. If you're a Jewish boy, girls didn't get quite the same education that guys got, but all the Jewish boys, by the time they were out of school, had memorized the first five books of the Bible. Now you try to do that. Genesis, not only Matthew, Mark, Luke, I mean Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, they knew it by heart. They knew it by heart, okay? So, and these Pharisees had memorized huge passages of Scripture. They knew this, they, they knew the Scripture. They had a high regard for the Scripture and for how it was meant to be interpreted. They spent a lot of time talking about the interpretation of Scripture and what it meant. Are those bad things? No, not at all. Those are good things. Okay, so they had a high regard for purity and piety. They had a high regard for the reverence of Scripture. And next, they had a, uh, an, uh, an important belief in the supernatural. Now, in this I mentioned because in this they were distinct from another sect called Sadducees. Sadducees were also religious leaders. They were the wealthy ones. They were teachers as well. They were kind of aligned with power in there. And they did not have much used for supernatural. And the basic idea was they didn't believe in the resurrection of the dead. And if you read in the Gospels and read in the book of Acts, you will see that this is a very important theme that comes out because the Apostle Paul, for example, one time was called before the Sanhedrin and he was defending himself against the charges that could, could have him killed. And there are 70 men in this Sanhedrin. It is made of both Sadducees and Pharisees, mostly Sadducees because they had the power. But there were Pharisees among them. And so he said to them, he said, I am on trial today because of my belief in the resurrection of the dead. What he did by saying that is he put, pitted the Sadducees against the Pharisees. And so the Sadducees said, that's terrible. And the Pharisees said, maybe he's got something there. Remember the Sadducees came to Jesus and asked him the question. A guy was married to seven, or a woman was married to seven different guys who all who died. And they, they married each other like the Bible told them as opposed to in the resurrection of the dead, whose wife will she be? Why do they ask that question? These Sadducees did not believe in the resurrection. They thought it was foolish. But the Pharisees did. These were people who believed in the miraculous working of God. Now, if you're a follower of Jesus, I hope you believe that God is alive and active. I hope you believe in the resurrection of the dead. See, these are not bad characteristics at all. These are very good characteristics. But... These were the people who ultimately had Jesus crucified. These people who valued the scripture, who valued purity, who valued piety, who believed that God was going to send a Messiah. These people, when God did what they were expecting, what did they do? They couldn't, they couldn't accept it. 
They weren't blind. They didn't see what God was doing. What was the problem? Let's go next to the problem. Well, I have to be very quick as I think about this. Number one, they, the, the first problem was they thought that purity and piety were means to God's acceptance. They thought that somehow if they just believed in the right things, acted the right way, held their uh, life in, in obedience to God's word as well as it should, that that would then make them worthy of God's acceptance. They thought that their righteousness would make them right before God, that somehow they could be good enough for God to respond. That's why they were very critical of tax collectors and sinners, because these people were trouncing upon God's goodness. These, the Pharisees, on the other hand, really believed that it was important to live a good life, and they made the mistake of thinking that somehow we would earn a right standing with God by living our good life. And that's a problem, because that's not what Jesus came to do. Jesus came to give righteousness to those who don't deserve it and who know that they... He came to give sight to those who know that they are blind. These people, by their activities, their righteousness, thought that somehow they were earning a good standing before God. And that's a mistake that we can make. In fact, I would say that the majority of people that I know, even probably who are part of our church sometimes, don't understand that our own good deeds do not earn us brownie points with God. God doesn't have a scorecard, or if you might say, God has a scorecard, and there are two scorecards that he can look at. One is you can come to God with your record and hope that you pass, or you can come to God with whose record? Jesus' record. That's the difference between Christianity and religion. That was the difference between Jesus and the Pharisees. There are a lot of people looking to come to God with their record. It's only human, but it's wrong. And so these people thought that their piety and their purity made them ready for God. And Jesus said, don't you understand? We're all, you're all blind. The people who know it get sight. The people who don't remain blind, even though they think they see. Wow. Okay, the second thing that they thought that they that was a problem for them, is that yes, they were had a high reverence for scripture, but they loved their ideas about God more than God himself. Oh, I could talk for an hour about this problem. We who are Bible-believing Christians, and that describes probably many of us here today, there's a danger that we can study the Bible and come to our interpretation of the Bible and get more committed to our interpretation of truth than to truth itself. More interpretation, we can get more, we can be more in love with the Bible than we are with Jesus. That's what happened that first day. They had their own ideas about what God was supposed to be like. That's what happens here in this, and I, I, I'm, I'm trying to rush through, uh, okay. That's what happens in this interchange in verses 13 and following. They brought the man to the Pharisees, the man who had formerly been blind. Now it was a Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. And now we discover the problem. The problem was not the fact that he got healed, but it was when he got healed. 
It happened to a man on a Sabbath day. John has a penchant for telling us that Jesus did all this stuff on the holy days and the holy feasts. John is organized around the holy days and the holy feasts. It's like that's all that ever happened. Because John wants us to know that Jesus is the ultimate holy day. Jesus is the ultimate holy feast. He's the fulfillment of all the holy days. He is the fulfillment of all the holy feasts. But that's another point altogether. It's Okay. It happened to have been the Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. So the Pharisees again asked him, now Jesus is off the scene now, talking to the man who had been blind. They asked him how he had received his sight. He said to them, well, he put mud in my eyes, and I washed, and I see. Some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, how can a man who was a sinner do such signs? And there was a division among them. What's going on here? That 16th verse. I'm going to read it one more time. This man cannot be from God, they said, for he does not keep the Sabbath. How can a man who is a sinner do such signs? And there was a division among them. So the Pharisees themselves were divided. What was their division? There were those who were saying, the rule is no work on the Sabbath. No matter what happened to this guy, that rule got broken. That's a bad man. Then there was, within the Pharisees, another group. Wait a minute. A man who was born blind has been healed on the Sabbath. That sounds like a work of God, doesn't it? You see? See the difference? The second group was a little bit more in line with the way they should have viewed their theology. Oh, be careful. I, 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 if any of you know me, you know me, that I believe in the authority and the inspiration of Scripture. I study it. I believe it. I want to live my life by it. But I also recognize that human understanding is finite. We do not have the last word on every little thing. I might come to some conclusions. One of the things, we haven't talked about this much at our church, but there's a statement Richard Baxter missed, said uh, several hundred years ago that really characterizes the way I approach things. He said, in essential things, unity. In non-essential things, liberty. In all things, charity. Now, I'd love to take time to unpack what that means. But that means that we've got to be united about the essential things, but there are many things which are important, but not essential. Brian here works in my car. I'm so thankful for that. And if I go there and I say I have a problem, my brake is not stopping my car, he would say, bring it right in and stop driving it. <laughs> Let's fix that. That's essential. But if I go to him and say my heater does not work in my car, and by the way, both of these things have been true in my car. Live with it. <laughs> He'd say, live with it. It's important. It's not essential. Now, it's true that I also have a, a broken window on my van that always lets the air out. It's not always comfortable, especially on a day like today, to be without that window. But it's not essential. If I said I want, you know, and so often we mistake the important or the non-essential for the essential. And it takes a lot of grace. So what do we do? We come with our best interpretation of everything. And anybody who fits just a smidgen outside of it, we push them out. They're bad. And we demonize them often, don't we? This was the problem those guys did. Well, yes, you're supposed to obey the Sabbath. Jesus had made some mud. That's what he had done. And somehow he's a sinner because that happened. Why? Because these guys had gotten their priorities mixed up. 
One of the things I see in the Bible is that we never quite get it perfect. <laughs> David didn't get it perfect. Abraham didn't get it perfect. Moses didn't get it perfect. Paul didn't get it perfect. Peter didn't get it perfect. August, Augustine didn't get it perfect, perfect. Thomas didn't get it perfect. Luther didn't get it perfect. Calvin didn't get it perfect. Nobody gets it perfect. God gets it perfect. We love God, and we allow for differences, right? I know, that's kind of hard. But that's what, that's what keeps us from being Pharisees. <laughs> because they love their ideas about God more than God himself. It's a good thing we're not outdoors this morning because I'd go over. <laughs> because I, um, all right. The third thing about their problem is they wanted the supernatural in theory but not in practice. Oh, boy. There was the supernatural right in front of them. A man had been healed. These guys would die for the theory of the resurrection of the dead. They would fight over that. But when they saw... The resurrection of the dead happened in terms of new life given to the eyesight. See, Jesus comes about to bring new resurrection. His resurrection is the first fruits of the full of the full resurrection. We're called to be witnesses of that resurrection power of Christ. By the way, we live our lives. If anyone's in Christ, he's a new creation. So this man had experienced new creation through his eyesight right there. And these guys who would fight with the Sadducees over the ability of God to work a miracle of resurrection now are fighting with Jesus over whether or not he should have done this sort of thing. And so often, there are people among us, and I'm this way, is that I want God to work in history. I'll fight for the resurrection. I'll fight for the miracles. I'll fight for Jonah and the big fish. I'll fight for creation. I'll fight for all that stuff, but I'm not expecting God to do anything miraculous or real or supernatural today. And when I do that, I'm in the Pharisee power. So this was... Their problem. They thought purity and piety were means. Oh, I'm getting all tangled up here. Means to God's acceptance. They loved their ideas about God more than God Himself. They wanted the supernatural in theory, but not in practice. Well, let's. We'll have to close with this. What was the solution for these guys? Well, on that first issue, they needed to learn to embrace grace, not religion. You see. They had thought that purity and piety earned standing with God, that then they would be worthy of God's acceptance. If you think you could ever get worthy of God's acceptance, you're fooling yourself. Just like, in fact, it's an affront to God. I'm a parent of three children. If my children thought for a moment that they need to somehow earn my love, I have failed them, haven't I? They have my love because they're my children. Even when they screw up, they're my children. I love them. I would lay down my life for them. I want them to know they're deeply loved. God loves us that much too. He uh, relates to us on the basis of grace, not on the basis of law. These men had embraced a religious activity which made them feel worthy before God, and it was threatening when God, Jesus, started to break the whole thing, not honor the Sabbath the way they wanted them to, not honor, not honor the, the washing of the hands like they wanted them to, not do all this stuff, not, not to um, enforce the laws like they wanted them to. You see, that was threatening to them because their identity was tied up in their performance. Grace comes to those who admit their performance is suspect and receive God's grace. You see, the second part of the solution is to, uh, to love God, not ideas. 
Uh, I love ideas. I'm a thinker. I, I love to read, I love to think, I love to write. I, I'm not dissing hard intellectual activity, but we must always remember that theology is meant to make us lovers of God. Lovers of God. And we must always hold our truths lightly, you know, because we love God supremely. And uh, these men, and I say men because the Pharisees were men, had gotten in love with their thought by thinking, not in love with God. And the third thing is, follow Jesus today, not yesterday. Now they were eager to see God's supernatural power at work in the past, and yes, something in the future, but they couldn't see it happening right now. We need to be willing to follow Jesus, not just yesterday, but to follow him every day. Well, I need to close my time. In, in, uh, in verse 36 to 38, Jesus says to them, For judgment I came into the world that those who do not see may see, and that those who see may become blind. Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, Are we also blind? Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you'd have no guilt. But now that you see, you say we see, your guilt remains. These guys had trouble realizing that they were guilty, even though they didn't know it. And the end of the story is, of course, that Jesus came to die not just for blind men, but for Pharisees. So I invite all of you who, like me, find a little Pharisee in you to join me at the Lord's table. It's not for those who've earned it, who become worthy, it's those who realize their blindness and see their need for Jesus. It's not for those who all just have the right ideas and all the perfect theology, it's those who love God and want to follow Him. I had wanted to talk about the other blind man, but it was not time. And it's not for those who just want to believe that someday Yesterday, God worked, but that today, God is working, and that he meets us by virtue of the of death of his son. Let's have prayers with us. Lord Jesus, thank you for your grace. Thank you that you love Pharisees, too, because that's us sometimes. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.